1: Really lucky today. I mean, seriously, I'm lucky today. I got Brian Lamb on the phone. Uh, Of course, Brian Lamb, known for C-SPAN. The man who conceived it, who birthed it, who uh, developed it, and has made it into what it is, along with all the other people that he's hired along the way to help him do it. But this is the man who had the plan. And uh, I, I feel honored to talk to you because I think you are... One of the people who really understands radio, and and transparency, and and you've gone out and done it.
2: You do, you do, you don't really believe all that. You just know that we both come from Indiana, and that's all. That
1: <laughs> I know. I, I just I know you're a boilermaker. I know, and I'm an IU Hoosier. So you know what can I say? But we can get along here uh, without any problem. But no, I I firmly believe that you you did something that was sitting out there ready to be done, but you were the only one I feel had the guts to take it in and, and run with it.
2: Well, thank you. <clears throat> but, you know, the more interesting thing from my perspective <clears throat> is that <clears throat> we were able to convince private business people to spend money on something that had absolutely no return to them. And from the bottom line standpoint, and, it's uh, that's what's unique about it after all these years is that the original cable television people who at the time were making no money, they've done very well, mm-hmm. uh, were, were willing to spend some money on to try to start something that everybody said at the time will not work. And we're still here.
1: Yeah. I'll, what, you started 77 around that time? Was that right? I personally started uh, trying to to something like this in 69. Wow.
2: And I got a tremendous number of noses, as you would imagine. Satellite came along in 75 for the cable people, and 77 when they started looking for new ideas, and 79 is when we started on the air. So this is our 40th uh, on-the-air uh, anniversary.
1: That's amazing. I mean, I just think you, you look at both parties now and all of the intricacies of government and transparency is not one of their strong points you know what I'm saying
2: oh yes I do
1: and 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 you've been able to bring a lot of transparency to our form of government it's it's fantastic what you've done well, you know
2: i w- I wish it was fantastic i I think if you look at it in reality that transparency is the last thing a lot of politicians want mm-hmm And all we've been able to do, and and I don't want to minimize it, but all we've been able to do is put a camera in front of what is public, And except for the Supreme Court, which insists that it would ruin their institution if television cameras were in there, which is something I totally disagree with. But that's all really we've done. They still make an enormous amount of their decisions, Dave, behind the scenes, and we'll never get there. They're never going to let us see that. Uh, And that's an incredibly important part of this process, the behind the scenes stuff.
1: Well, I I agree. But just to give you an example, the state Senate here in Arkansas just started uh, televising their meetings in the well of the Senate and their committee meetings this year. That's how far behind they were.
2: What about the House?
1: The House has been doing it for almost a decade. Yeah, there's
2: something about <laughs> we were Senate was seven years be, behind the House. There's something about these the upper body, so to speak, the, that they don't want people to peek in and see what they're doing. I don't, I don't completely understand it.
1: Well, they're the more deliberative body, which to me they should have been the first. Then, if they're more deliberative, but not not the case. My my you know, in, go ahead.
2: I was just going to say in history, the Senate didn't allow. Uh, the public to see what they were doing in any way for the first five years of their existence
1: they they, lock, they kept the uh, the gallery locked huh
2: just like when they deliberated the constitutional convention they locked the windows down and uh, wouldn't let anybody in
1: so so let me ask you when did you know for a fact that you were a you know just a policy walk you wanted to know what was going on.
2: I don't know that I ever thought I was a policy wonk. Um, I was like you in the service. Uh, And when I moved here, the last two years of my service, I spent four years in the service and was in the Navy. Uh, I I got very interested in how it all worked. I was here in the laboratory of democracies, so to speak, even though we're a republic. Uh, And I went around to all the institutions that would let me in and sat and watched them do their business. And I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. And that's probably where it all began for me.
1: So I, your book that you've written, and uh, Susan Swain and C-SPAN is Contributions by Brinkley, Medford, Smith. You've had a lot of people work on this book. The Presidents, noted historians, rank America's best and worst chief executives. You have been there through a lot of stuff. I had... I don't know if you know Michael Harrison from Talkers Magazine. Uh, I know him well. I I sat down with Michael one time and was asking him what I was going to have to do to, to finally break through. And he said, Dave, you're good right now, but you won't be great until you're 55 years old. And I said, why is that? And I was about 35 at the time. And he told me, because you're not old enough, you have got to have lived some to really talk about politics with any kind of, uh, you know, gravitas or whatever. And I don't even know if I've got that yet. But the bottom line is, you know, when I talk about Lyndon Baines Johnson now, I was alive when he was president uh, on the '68 presidential, uh, you know, convention in Chicago. I was there covering it for the Hammond Times. I mean, there's something to say about that. And you've seen so much in, in the that has gone th- with this government I mean you're like a walking history in and of yourself that lived with the people of Washington dc
2: yeah um but you know you talk about our book it looks like it's a book about presidents I look at it and think of because I did the interviews with all the authors I look at it as a book about the fantastic. Uh, historians that we have that have really walked with history, gotten up far closer to it than I have. I've been an observer. That's about all you can say. These characters went deep into the vault to find the information, and they deserve a lot more credit for what we know about presidents than they get.
1: I mean, I mean, there's great, great writers. I mean, we had you know Goodwin and, and, and others that have wrote great history and have have looked at what has gone on. So, are you saying that you feel kind of just like you you were voyeuristic? You got to watch it. I mean, but you were able to to report it to the people. You did something nobody else had had ever done until this time. Yeah, it feels like, and I'm getting very
2: old and uh, can barely talk anymore. Um, I, <laughs> it, it feels like, frankly, as I look back on my life that I just observed, I watched and I was able in our little way here to pass it on to those who were interested beyond Washington. And I come, you know, like you, I come from the middle of the country uh, and there was not as much information there as there in a, is in a city like Washington today. Everybody in the country is equal when it comes to information. Mm hmm. Washington doesn't have any special insight on information. You can live anywhere, Little Rock or Lafayette, Indiana or Hammond, and get exactly the same information that they do here. The only thing you miss is you're not able to walk around and talk to people in person.
1: But you've gotten to talk to a lot of people in person. I mean, you you did an interview show for how many years on C-SPAN? I'm finishing 30. Okay. So you've had all the newsmakers... You've had people on that everybody wanted to hear from and probably like with my show, have had people on that nobody thought they wanted to hear from until they heard from them. So, you know, when you look at that, you got a much more broad look at what was going on in Washington, D.C. than the average American.
2: I would say the the most interesting thing for me was that I've interviewed so many people, as I'm sure you have, that um, you begin to watch very carefully as to what they're saying and where the information is coming from, and then more importantly, what they're not saying. Mm. And when you read their book, they will write a lot more than they're willing to say. I often say that they write hard and talk soft, and so you have to read back to them what they've said in order to get them to comment on what's in their book. It's it's, it's come to me so often, and if you don't read it back to them, they won't admit that they wrote it.
1: Well, let's talk about a few things that were going on during the time that C-SPAN has been on the air and... How interesting it was during those times That's how about the Iran Contra meetings with uh, with names like now Oliver North that's in every that rolls off a of people's tongue with no problem nobody knew who it was and then uh, and, and President Reagan I mean I, I think Reagan was one of the greatest presidents yet he had his you know interesting background too well the Iran Contra
2: hearings were interesting um, for reasons that you would not be aware of for C-SPAN and the public would not be aware of it. And I think it's an interesting little side story. When the Iran-Control hearings came around, um, we had been covering Congress for a long time. Mm -hmm. We had been covering daily several committee uh, hearings from gavel to gavel the big networks decided when Iran country came around that they had to have their cameras in the room and they had to have exclusivity. And they turned around to us at the time and said, if you want to carry these hearings, we're, you're, we're going to charge you a hundred thousand dollars.
1: <laughs> that sounds like a network.
2: It, it is it's the way they operate. And, it, and we said, no, 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 we've been here every day. You're not. You can't come in and bigfoot us like that. And we went to the Congress and said, this is grossly unfair. And so they had to back down. And the odd thing about it, ever since, almost every hearing you see on television is shot by us. Right. And we, under the rules, under the rules, we have to give it to the networks.
1: Oh, well, you don't get any money at all for putting up the equipment and doing all the work for them then. Get zero. So you're just like a now, pool reporter at that point.
2: Well, because we want multiple cameras in the room, and we become the pool for multiple cameras, we have to give it to everybody.
1: Wow. Well, you know, that's that's kind of stuff that won't even buy you a cup of coffee, but it's so cool that you get to do that. You know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah. And after all these years, I think there's a lot more trust. The big networks thought they were the only ones that could do anything and um, I think they're finding in the new age that there's a tremendous amount of dialogue going on that they're not generating, and they're losing audience, and they're trying to figure out how to keep it. And so it's going to be interesting. Ten years from now, this won't even be an issue.
1: Well, what's interesting, and and let me see if, if you agree, that, When I watch and and want to watch the president's State of the Union, or if I want to watch what's going on uh, in a Senate hearing or whatever, I don't even think of the networks. I always think of you all, and I go and watch your coverage because it's unfettered. There's nobody between me and what's going on, and I don't listen to a talking head tell me what I just saw.
2: There's a lot to that. It's always something that I personally wanted. However, if I were studying the process, what I would find interesting is what hearings do the other cable networks cover and why? And you know, we're there every day, but it's that in itself is a political statement. I don't know that anybody's ever even examined it, but they will cover very few, but when they cover it there's something that triggers it. It's pretty obvious most of the time. But that would be its a good thing for the somebody at the University of Arkansas looking for a Ph.D. to write a paper about.
1: I would agree with that I wholeheartedly because you guys, you know, the networks are trying to cherry pick what they think is sexy and what isn't sexy. You are just carrying the information and you allow the viewer to decide what is important and what not important.
2: And in fairness to the networks, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for all the different channels, uh, cable television wouldn't be here, it's interesting to watch, after probably it was about 35 years of existence, that the numbers stopped going up, the numbers of customers that subscribed to cable, and they started going down because of the new technology. Right. And this is not unusual in history. But uh, the next five to ten years will be interesting to watch and to see what survives, including us.
1: Well, I think you all will survive just because you're the you're the camera that is there all the time that allow people to watch what's going on. I I, I admit that there's meetings that are still done behind closed doors. I see that all the time here. Uh, in the state of Arkansas, and when I worked at WIBC in, in Little Rock, uh, not Little Rock, in Indianapolis, and was the the Capitol reporter, I saw that when I was there. But you give a real live eye for people to see things that they never would have ever seen before uh, with with span
2: Dave, you're not going to like this, but I have to break in and say to you, when you mentioned WIBC, yes. that I grew up listening to WIBC, and I wonder if you've ever heard the following. Bouncing Bill Baker, the doctor of discology, mutilating the modulations on this, your friendly Hoosier station... W.I.B.C., The Voice of Indiana, 1070 on your dial.
1: I did not. I will admit I did not. In fact, I was on it when it was still 1070. Now it's, of course, an FM station only. Uh, Fred was the only person that I knew really well there. And then uh, the people that I worked directly, Pigeon and some of the other folks that I worked with uh, at W.I.B.C., But that was a station that was local. That was a station that was interested in going and still having reporters that went to the Capitol and reported on what was happening in the Capitol. And we would go there live and and cover it. A lot of that's gone, which means, you know, you're even more important now in the Washington area for all of us. But uh, I sure wish there was a C-SPAN in every state in the union.
2: There have been a lot more additions of C-SPAN types in every state, uh, but I have to tell you, the support is not strong. It's just not strong.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
2: kind of like the support right now for <clears throat> Capitol Hill, reporters in all these states, not strong. Newspapers, the printed version, not strong. It's uh, it's really gonna be, I, know, I hate to keep using the phrase interesting, but it's going to be important uh, as time goes on, and whether or not the local state governments are going to be covered for people to keep an eye on how their money's being spent locally. It's hard enough nationally to watch it, but it's just as important locally.
1: Well, I think it's more important, in fact, because it, it, the more local you can get for people, the more in, influence they can have on what's happening uh, in politics. But they don't see it that way. All they, uh, Most people see it it's, it all begins and ends in Washington, D.C., and it might start in D.C., but it's going to end up in the well and in the House of uh, and in the governor's office of your state.
2: I'd like to tell you a Little Rock story. Okay. Um, when we started, actually before C-SPAN started in 1976, no, no, we had started. We had started. It was our first six months. We were looking for ways to to carry something other than the House of Representatives. And somebody said that if you wanted to, you could cover the Republican governor's meeting in Austin, Texas. And we had no money. Mm -hmm. And the fellow that owned the Little Rock cable system agreed to give us $10,000. And I don't remember the politics of why he said yes. Yes. Gave us $10,000, and the system there was owned also by Lady Bird Johnson. Okay. So we went to Austin, Texas, hired a production unit with the $10,000 we got, covered the, the, uh, the Republican Governor's Conference from start to finish, held it from August until Thanksgiving Day, ran it when there wasn't anything else going on, And that was the first time we knew we had an audience because we asked people to call us and tell us what their reaction was to it. And it's all thanks to Little Rock, Arkansas.
1: Well, I'm glad that uh, the the city was able to help you out. For people who don't know, Lady Bird Johnson, Johnson Family owned one of the big talkers in in Austin, Texas, Uh, you know, that people listen to still by the droves, you know, let me talk about you with your book here for this last five or six minutes we got. I want to shift to that specifically again. It's called The Presidents, Noted Historians Rank America's Best and Worst Chief Executives. Any big surprises came out out of this book you weren't expecting?
2: Well, for me personally, there's a surprise on every page. There's something there that I either forgot or didn't know, even though I had interviewed all these folks. And... Cumulatively, it's very complicated when you look back at our past on how we got to where we are. That's my biggest surprise.
1: Did it seem to be that difficult while you were in the midst of it, or was it just you just did whatever you had to do to get to where you were going?
2: No, it didn't seem difficult. Um, you know, as I, over the 30 years that I interviewed the 44 authors that are in the book, you just took it a week at a time, you know, and they were – dispersed over those 30 years at different times, didn't give it much thought, read the books, thought about it, put it away, kept on moving. And then when we went back, the, the, the most important person on the cover of that book, besides those three historians, is Susan Swain. And she took the, my questions out of the transcripts and figured out a way to create a narrative for each of the chapters. And that process allowed me to go back and read it again and read it again and we had a group here that was headed up by a woman named Rachel Katz and she was responsible for all the detail work uh, on this and that in itself was another learning experience. And I would say this to anybody that wants to buy this book, get a notepad and as you go through it, make notes and realize that we have a website to back it up, you'll be able to find the definitions of everything that is discussed in there because you can't keep track of it, very few people, except historians, can keep track of all the facts around something like the Dred Scott
1: decision. Mm-hmm. It's really, really amazing that you put this together. And is this the last book that you feel like that you'll you'll be involved with, or do you still feel as adamant and as energized by bringing facts to people as you have? since you started C-SPAN or even in getting your career, you always wanted to be in, in radio and television from what I can tell.
2: Oh, I'm ready to go again. Uh, No, I, the the last interview that I'm going to do on Q and a, which is Arkansas time, seven o'clock on Sunday night, will be May 19th and it will be David McCullough. And David is fantastic human being. He's 86 years old. And He's an example for me. I mean, you just don't stop. There's just too much fun in this stuff, and you learn something, and you hope some other people learn especially young people who don't study much history anymore. That's part of what motivates old geezers like me is to introduce this <laughs> stuff to the young crowd and hope that they get as enthusiastic as uh, a lot of these authors have been.
1: Well, you said something right at the very beginning that caught me immediately, and I'll mention it to you now as I end with my interview with you, and that is you are exactly correct. We are a republic and not a democracy. I get so tired of hearing people say democracy this, democracy that. I am so glad that we are a republic.
2: Yeah, and there are a lot of people who would like to change that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we've been seeing and hearing about that over the last few years, have we not? Brian, thank you so much for the time. This has been a real pleasure for me, and uh, hopefully sometime we'll get to spend some more time on the radio together. Thank
2: you, Dave. I really enjoyed talking with a fellow Hoosier.
1: All right. Thank you. Brian Lamb from C-SPAN.